Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. Today with me on the esteemed panel, we have Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from planet Earth. Planet Earth, wow. And it's around Earth, not flat, right? Never know. Don't get into religion and politics on the show. Okay, sorry, sorry. I am your host, Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I am hosting today. With us today as our guest, we have Jonathan Reinick, and Jonathan is going to talk to us about his latest project called Nursia.js. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Your app is slow, and you probably don't even know it. Maybe it's fine in most places, but then the customer loads the page up that one page, and after a couple of seconds, their attention disappears into Twitter and never comes back. The reality is there are performance issues in your app and they're affecting your customer experience. What you need to do is hook up your app to Scout APM and let it start telling you where the slowdowns are happening. It makes it really easy. It tells you how slow things are and what the problem is, like N plus one queries or memory bloat. It's also built for developers, so it makes it really easy to identify where the fix needs to go. I've hooked it up to some of my apps and I saw what I needed to fix in a couple of minutes. Try it today for free and they'll donate $5 to the open source project of your choice. Just go to scoutapm.com slash devchat and then deploy it to your app. Once you do that, they'll donate the five bucks. That's scoutapm.com slash devchat. Why don't you give us a brief intro? Tell us who you are, what you do, why you're famous and all that good stuff. Yeah, why I'm famous. Yeah, not quite there yet, but I'm working on it. Yeah, so I am a software developer, naturally, and I live in Ontario, Canada. That is also part of the Earth, just so you know, AJ, that is kind of in the same area, roughly, just a little bit more specific. What I say about getting into religion and politics? Sorry, sorry. about what you believe about what you think is on my Earth. Moving on. (laughs) And I've I've been doing web development since basically the early 2000s. And my kind of my main focus, kind of a few different areas of focus, most of uh, kind of started out working with PHP. And that's still largely what I work with these days. Most of my work's done with the Laravel framework, and I'm pretty actively involved in the Laravel community. I've also done some work uh, in the CSS space. I worked with a buddy of mine, Adam Weathen, and helped him get the first version of Tailwind CSS out, if you've heard of that library. So that's been a fun, yeah, fun project to be involved in. And then more recently, last year, I started Inertia.js, which is my answer to making, basically creating single page applications a little bit easier for developers who have historically worked and built applications with uh, more classic server-side rendered applica- or frameworks like Laravel or, or uh, Ruby on Rails. So that was, that's kind of my JavaScript first kind of foray into the JavaScript space. And more recently, I actually spent the better part of the start of this year putting out my first learning product. I actually created a video course, a 28-lesson uh, video course all about database optimizations. And that went out at the beginning of June, and that went really, really well. The course is called Eloquent Performance Patterns. So it's basically how to run and write uh, really performing database queries using Eloquent, which is Laravel's ORM. Uh, it's an active record style ORM. So that was a lot of fun. Had a, It was a real challenge. That was something new to me to get that out the door, but the response has been amazing. So 
that's good because it basically helps me finance some of my other open source work so I can spend more time on Inertia.js. So those are, I, I take it that's for SQL databases as compared to like a NoSQL database? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's all, it's all relational stuff. So kind of I looked at, the three I look at primarily are MySQL, Postgres, and SQLite. Okay. So I'm going to insert an interesting bit of trivia here, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but we always use the term relational databases. And everybody always thinks it's because the way tables relate together. Did you know that's not where the term relational comes from? No, I had no idea. Uh, I read this in a sequel for dummies book in a bookstore one time, and it's always stuck with me. So as I understand it, and maybe someone will correct me if I'm wrong, it has, it, it's a term that has to do with set, set theory, which is the area of mathematics that is used in building SQL databases. But there's your trivia for the day. I had no idea. Yeah. Thanks for enlightening us. Yeah. uh, I'll have to look that up later and make sure that what I just said was right. But that's what I remember. (laughs) So anyway, so Inertia.js. Obviously, I'm thinking of the XKCD, you know, cartoon that talks about, well, hey, there's all these tools that don't do it right. So I'm going to add one more. And then, you know, pretty soon, you know, now we've got instead of 14 linters, we have 15 linters, whatever the case may be. So obviously you felt that the current tool set didn't do things the way you liked them. So you decided to do something the way you liked it. So why don't you tell us about, I guess, how you got started into Inertia, what you saw that you didn't like and, and the process from there. Yeah. So guilty as charged. Yes. I brought another JavaScript framework to the world. Although I argue that Inertia isn't a, isn't a framework. I argue that it is a library. So my goal wasn't to create something that you use instead of React or instead of uh, Vue.js. My goal was really just to make those libraries easier to work with for a certain type of developer. So that's, that's my, uh, my defense. But yeah, so the, the way I got going with Inertia.js so again, going to back up a little bit here. So I've primarily worked with Laravel, which is a server-side rendered application or web framework in PHP, very similar to Ruby on Rails or Django, that kind of style framework, where you have a set of routes and those routes are defined client-side. And when a request comes in, your server-side framework picks that up and redirects you or loads up a controller typically. And that controller then gets some data data from the database, and also then from there, takes that data, maybe does some work on it, and then spits it to a view. So in Laravel, there's blade views. In Rails, you'd have like ERB templates. So And then from there, it gets rendered client-side and, and gets spit back to the browser. And that's great. I love building web apps that way, and I've done it that way for a long, long time. However, as I moved from doing more I would say kind of public facing websites to doing more web applications, I started feeling kind of the limitations of that approach. And I started wanting to introduce more interactivity into my applications and that, re- that required more um, JavaScript. So any sort of control you know, that you might make that you can't do with just plain old HTML, you have to introduce some JavaScript. And there's uh, obviously lots of different ways to do that. And the way that I enjoy doing that is with the library Vue.js. So I was still using Laravel and still using server-side rendered templates. But what I wanted is, what I started doing is just dropping in Vue components into my server-side rendered templates when I needed some extra interactivity. 
And I was building, I actually have a, a little SaaS product that I run for churches. And this application has a ton of these view components. And what I started having in, in my application is I had this, this whole layer of my application of, you know, kind of my front end, which was these blade templates that rendered client side. But then I had a whole set of also these view components, these JavaScript components that, that kind of lived in a different place, uh, but then kind of got mashed together when the template got rendered. And practically speaking, it wasn't really nice to work that way because every time I wanted to make a change to some UI in my application, I had to think, okay, well, is this in a blade template or is this in a view component? Or worst yet, you know, is it some sort of mix between the two? Do I have, you know, part of this page being rendered this, you know, server side and part of it client side? And it was always just like, it just became this frustrating thing trying to manage that and just context switching, you know, I, I, I would have a page that I want to just add a little thing to it, like maybe a drop down or whatever it was. And I'd have to say, okay, well, now I have to do a trade off. Do I have to convert this now to a view component just so I can do what I want to do? Is there some other way? So, well, how um, does that work when you combine the two like that? If I can interrupt real quick. So, you yeah, talk about yeah. Some, of it's, some of it's in templates, some of it's blade templates, and some of it's view components. Mm-hmm. So, you have different components handling different routes, then is how that works. So, this routes are handled by a view component because I need interactivity. Where this route is handled by a blade template because it's all static and can come from the server. No, not quite like that. Well, it would, it would all ultimately start by rendering a server side rendered blade view. But if there if there was needed, like if I needed a view component, then that view component would just be rendered as part of the page. And then view when the when that page loaded, view would kick, you know, kick into gear and boot up that view component or 10 view components if that's what existed on the page and and make those active. Does that make sense? Sort so, of. I'm, so, I'm just trying yeah, to understand so, the handoff between the blade to the view component. Yeah. So the thing, the thing with Vue.js, I don't know how familiar you are with Vue, but Vue doesn't have to be only used in like a classic SBA sort of the view way. You can also just drop in a view component. So it's, you know, my component, and you can just drop that into an HTML server-side rendered HTML template. And it, it literally, when the page loads, it'll spit that out as HTML. So your, your component but then the component actually then gets booted up by Vue.js. And you can do the same thing with React after the fact. So it loads client side. It just puts up the, the tag, the, the element into the page. And then the, when the JavaScript boots up, then that, that Vue component becomes alive. So, okay, so are you using like Vue single file components or just like a new component object written inside of the, the template? I yeah, I tend to use single file components, but you don't even have to do it that way. You can do it either way. And so it's you, attaching to your app element or whatever you've identified as your root element in the page. Exactly. Yep. Which gives you right. the ability to do a mix of server-side rendered HTML and client-side rendered HTML. Right. But the trade-off and the unfortunate thing is not only that you kind of have these two different paradigms, the other thing you get is these like basically flickers when the page loads. Because imagine you have some page load, it renders the HTML server side. And then there's you know a button or there's a dropdown or there's some sort of input or whatever that's controlled by view. It then has to load and it flickers because it takes a second for that thing to initialize, right? Right. So and that kind of just makes for a bit of a janky user experience because it's not like this nice seamless thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Mostly? Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. So yeah, so moving from kind of like server-side rendered, entirely server-side rendered to partially server-side rendered with a certain amount of JavaScript kind of in there. And like back in the day when we used to do this with jQuery, we would still say we had a list, right? We'd have a list that would be server-side rendered, 
but then jQuery would pick it up after the fact and add some additional interactivity to it, right? That's kind of like how the jQuery approach worked. But with Vue and React, these components are designed to like work on their own. If there is a, a list that gets some data passed to it as props, then the actual view component is responsible for rendering itself. So there's no rendering that's happened on the client side or sorry, on the server side for that component. So it really, you have to wait for the, the, the client side library to boot up before that gets rendered. What I kind of ran into is, yeah, I didn't really like one, the Flickr, and I didn't like kind of the experience of working with these two different paradigms. So what I really wanted to do is I wanted to be able to build my applications in a way that was like I could do everything as a client-side component. I wanted to build everything in Vue from the template perspective because I really just enjoyed working with Vue. And I enjoyed all the power that having a a client-side framework gave me to to make whatever sort of interactivity I needed within my application. So I started, basically, I came up with a system originally where all I would do in my server-side controller is go to the database, get some data, and then I would return a response, and that response would, would have only two things. And it would basically be the shell of my HTML document, and it would have a single div in it. And that div served as a place where view would boot. And that div had two props assigned to it. One prop would be the component name, the page component name. So you know, m- maybe it was called users page or create user page or whatever. And then some props, which would be any data that 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 JavaScript component required. Now, that data would be passed in as a JSON-encoded set of data. So that when, when the client-side adapter booted up, it would, it would detect, okay, I see this page, you know, kind of that root element, that app element. It would look and it would see what page component had to render. So it would render that component passing through the props from, that were also added as an attribute to that base to that base div. And this allowed me to basically do everything as view components, but still have route all my, all my server-side routing and all my controllers where it gets data from the database all the exact same way it was before. So I didn't have to like switch to using an API or anything like that. So it was like a really nice, simple step forward. And I did that. And what I had been was all my pages were client-side rendered using view but it was still doing full page reload. So if you clicked on a link, it would just do a full page reload like a classic server-side rendered application does and then reload the page and then it would boot up the new view page element and display it and he kind of went that way. So what I did was I actually, to kind of give that more of that SBA feel, I actually used a tool developed by the folks at Basecamp called TurboLinks and I implemented that and so that when you click from one page to the next, it wouldn't do a full page reload. It would just swap out the HTML with the content of the new page. And that worked okay. But the problem with that approach is um, that works good. Like TurboLinks works great if you have a fully server-side rendered application. But because my application was now client-side rendered, when, you, when it reloaded the page but did it you know, client-side and trashed all the old HTML and then put in the new one, it meant that view had to be rebooted every single time which again meant that I got a page flicker because really TurboLinks and Vue don't really play all that well together. And there's some tricks that I've tried to make this a little bit nicer, but ultimately anytime you click on a link to visit a new page, TurboLinks would destroy the content that was there, the HTML that was there and force, it, force Vue to re, 
reboot it, you know, kind of the entire framework, which came at a performance cost, but then also more than that, it kind of just had this flicker to it. So I was like, man, it would be really nice if I kind of had this concept of TurboLinks. And if you're not super familiar with TurboLinks, basically what TurboLinks does is when you click a page, a link on your page, it basically intercepts that, that, that link visit. So be a click or whatever, and it prevents that from happening. Then it goes off and behind the scenes, makes a, an Ajax request, gets the page itself. When that HTML comes back, it swaps it out client side, and then it updates the URL using page state. And that works really, really kind of neat. It's kind of a, a neat little trick that the folks at Basecamp use for that. But the trick is, the problem is, again, that didn't play well with Vue. So I'm like, well, what, how can I take this TurboLinks idea and bring it to kind of Vue? And what I came up with was a similar sort of concept, except when I intercept a page click link, instead of going off and getting the HTML, I actually go off and I get some JSON back. So it's similar to you know just making a standard JSON H, XHR request, except in this way, <clears throat> the way the inertia works is it's designed so that the server detects if it's an XHR request, so if it's an inertia request, it doesn't give HTML back. Instead, it just gives me the JSON back that it, you know on the first page load, what it would normally go into that base div, that root div for the app for, in the props value, it goes to the server and it instead just gets that data and the, the, the name of the page component returns it back to Inertia, the client side, and Inertia says, okay, well, you want to go to, you know, you're on the users page and you want to go to the create new user page. Well, we know when, you hit, made, when we requested the new user page that we got the page component new user back. So it's a view component called new user page. And here's some props that are needed to render that component. And then it dynamically swaps them client side and updates the URL again using by updating the page state. Uh, yeah, the I forget what it's called, but basically just updating the URL dynamically the way you would with a normal client-side routing library. So let me make sure I get this straight. So using Inertia, if I click a link and I want to go to a new page, yep. I'm going to your Inertia backend getting whatever data I need and returning it. So how is that different where in normal view we're using a view router where you want to change pages? So you click a link and you make an Ajax call, you get your data, it switches component. It, uh, there's a term I'm looking for, um, provides the data to that component and displays it. What's the difference between the two approaches? Yeah, so that, that is kind of like, the, that's the big question. So for one, if typically if you're using a pro, like a library like view router, it's designed to work with all your data's client side, right? And you're making, you're using something like, I forget what it's called, Vuex, I think it's called for state management. Oh, for state management, yeah, Vuex. Yeah, and, and you got to build an API to return all that data. And there's kind of like a whole bunch of like, there's just a whole bunch of architectural changes that you make when you go about it that way. Even something like how you do your authentication it's it's kind of like a, an entire paradigm shift when you when you go that direction, whereas with inertia, I didn't want to I didn't want to have to say well just because I want to build a, an SVA, I don't want to have to throw out server side routing, and I don't want to have to throw out being able to get data for a specific endpoint using my ORM. I don't want to have to necessarily build a REST API or a GraphQL API in order to do this stuff. So. Inertia is just like a really, really simple way of essentially doing the same thing, except it just makes it really, really easy, which is why I always tell people that Inertia has really been designed for, for people who are used to building 
classic server-side rendered applications where you have all your running server-side and you have these controllers that get data for a specific page and then return it. Whereas if you, if you go more the classic server, uh, the classic SBA approach, what you would do is you'd use view router, you'd set up all your routes client side, you would then have your state management, which would then interact with an API that you'd have to go off and write. And you'd have to kind of like build all that stuff. And, and there are obviously advantages and there's definitely use cases for those style applications. I just think that there's, it requires more work in the end because you're, you're essentially building two different applications at that point. You're building an API and you're building your client-side application. And those kind of live in two different places. Right. So I think I get what you're saying just because I come from PHP 2 world from the Drupal side of things, mm-hmm. um, actually living in there, that world again for a couple of months. And so I understand what you're saying about being able to access your data. Whereas like, you know, if I'm really writing something server-side in PHP, I can just query my database from there. You know, I can do whatever the heck I want, whatever query I want. Whereas if I'm dealing strictly with a front end, I got to have that bridge, that API bridge between myself and the back end. And so if I want to change, add a new query or something, I got to change my API and write that code so that it gives me the access that I want. So am I making the right comparison here? Absolutely, exactly. And at first, it doesn't seem like a big, like it doesn't seem like a huge win at first. But if you've ever built an application where you have the separate API from your client-side application, you, you, you know the kind of pain that you run into, even just with versioning and keeping things in sync and you know, well, we need to make this change for the client side, but that means we're going to introduce this change to the API. And that is that change is going to introduce breaking changes for some other place. And it's just kind of like this whole thing you need to manage. And, and of course, there are times when that makes sense. You know, for instance, if you're building a significant application, web application that also has a significant iOS and Android app that go along with it, you know, then it might make sense to build an API. I just think that there's a lot of applications where the classic monolith, the classic server-side rendered approach, the old, you know, the, the Ruby on Rails, the Laravel approach just makes so much sense still because you can work and move so quickly. But the problem is, if you, if you are building an application using Laravel or Ruby on Rails and you want to have that SPA experience, it's not a simple little switch. It's not like, a, oh, well, just do this and now you have an SPA. It's like, well, actually you need to build a REST API now, or you need to build a GraphQL API, and you need to figure out your whole authentication layer, and you need to do this, and you need to do that, it gets really, really complicated and hairy quite fast. And that's really where, with Inertia, I wanted people to be able to kind of like create a new Rails app or create a new Laravel app and start creating your routes just like you always would and create controllers just like you always would and get data back from the database just like you always would but not, and then on the client side, not have to do server-side rendered views, but be able to use clients like a client-side library, like Vue or React, and build your whole client side that way, without kind of like going all in on kind of that SPA, you know, the classic SPA uh, setup and architecture. So okay, so from a front-end standpoint, I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit here, a la Adam Weldon. And yeah, so we're writing code on my, in my view template and I need to access some information from my backend. So what's the mechanism that makes that happen? Is it just a matter of calling a route and your controller handles everything for you based on parameters or how does that happen? Yeah, so 
basically, I'll just try to walk you through a simple example. So, you know, you're on your dashboard of your application and maybe you have a link on your page and that link goes to edit a user, maybe edit the current user, whatever. Okay. So when you click on that link, Inertia intercepts it and goes to the server and it says, I need to, basically it goes to visit the edit user endpoint, which is an endpoint that's been defined server side. So somewhere in your route definition file, server side, there is a route for editing a user. And then that, that route will typically link to a controller method. And that controller method will, would historically say, get some data about that user and then return it back using like a blade view or an ERB template. Except with inertia, it doesn't do that. It's going to return, it's going to get the data from the, the database or wherever. It doesn't have to be the database, but typically you're using your, your ORM to get the data from the database. And then what you do is you, you return an inertia response instead. So instead of returning a blade view or an ERB template, you say an, return inertia render. And again, you give it the page component name, which would be edit user, and then any data that you need for that edit user page, which in this case would be uh, a user object with maybe a first name, last name, an email address, and whatever other parameters that you want to show in the edit user page. So then that data then comes back to the client side because it's an XHR request, right? And Inertia, again, sees that response and then swaps out, you're on the dashboard, swaps out the dashboard page component with the edit user page component with the props, so the data necessary for that for that page, and then updates the URL accordingly. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonvue.com. So this must be, so I'm guessing there's some sort of NPM included library for inertia that's serving, it's basically serving as your API is what it sounds like. It's intercepting your call, going to your backend, getting your data, passing back off to your view component. Yeah, I guess you could look at it like that. Yeah, it, I think of it kind of like, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a protocol is what I think of it as. So when inertia makes a request, the client, so the server side knows, okay, if it's an inertia request, it knows not to just return HTML and it knows not just to return plain JSON. It knows that it has to return this response in a, you know, a very specific way. And that, like I said, that primarily includes the name of the page component that you want it to render and the data for that page component. But okay. yeah, like, it, yeah, to answer your question, it, there is kind of like, yes, a preset protocol, which I should maybe have mentioned the way that this all works is that inertia, because it, it is really this protocol when it makes a request, the server also knows how to respond to an inertia request. So when a request comes from the client side, the inertia request being an XHR request, right? It, it actually passes through a header that's, that is X inertia equals true. And what that does is it tells the server that it's an inertia request so that the, the server then knows how to respond. So we actually have, so we have three client side for adapters is what we call them. Three client side adapters for the various client-side frameworks. So one for Vue.js, one for React, and one for Svelte. And then we have a bunch of server-side adapters as well. So we have a Laravel adapter, we have a Rails adapter, and we have other adapters as well in addition to that. So what happens then is these two adapters, because they understand this protocol, they work together. And it just, and it kind of like, it, it maybe sounds like a lot, but it's actually really, really light. 
client, like it, practically speaking, the way you build your server side app is almost identical to the way you'd normally build a Laravel app or the way you'd normally build a Rails app. The only difference is instead of returning just some HTML from a Blade Viewer and ERB template, you just return an inertia response instead. But really, the, the, the way you build the whole rest of the back end is all the same. And even on the client side, I tell this to people too, inertia isn't this framework that you're really committing to. Really, what you've already done is you committed to a framework like Vue or React and inertia is almost like just the, it's kind of like a different type of React router or a different type of view router. It's like, it's really the piece that handles the routing, the client side routing, except instead with, you know, classics SBAs, the routing is all done uh, client side. It's all done with the expectation that you have some API. It's done with the expectation that you're going to have some uh, client side state management with inertia. It's, that's not at all. All it does is handle your page transitions and swapping out the page components when it goes from one page to the next. And it handles your history state uh, so that you can go forward and back and, and, and whatnot. But really, that's, it's really, really light because it, it really relies on the server-side framework to do the bulk of the work still. So I always say with inertia, like there is no client-side state because essentially the server is still your state, just like it would with a, a classic server-side rendered application. So what are, I don't know if you've done any benchmarking then. So how is this, is this, I'm assuming a little more performant using this approach as compared to a standard server side rendered setup? Is it similar? Where does it Yeah, so in? there's, there's, yeah, so the, the performance is lots of interesting things around performance so you can talk about. It depends on what, what kind of performance you're talking about. So the, the big trade-off, like, the trade-off is anytime you're using a client-side framework like Vue or React is that you're passing a bunch of JavaScript to the browser. So you have that problem. That is, that is you know, that's a trade-off of using Inertia because you're using a client-side framework and that framework and on all the page content, all that functionality all needs to be bundled up and passed over the wire to the, to the, to the client. Unlike a server-side rendered application, which is just spits out HTML and that's, you get the minimum amount of data possible because it just gives you HTML back. But that trade-off is often worth it because it's the same reason everyone uses Vue and React. It's because that, you know, you get all this additional functionality that comes with it. You can build these really rich client-side applications because you have this full, full JavaScript framework at your disposal. So that's kind of one thing to keep in mind. I should mention right away that there, even there, inertia works really, really well with code splitting. So if you, if you want to use code splitting, that works basically out of the box, uh, especially if you're using React, or sorry, especially if you're using Vue. Vue has awesome code splitting kind of built right in. You sort of get it for free with the framework. So meaning if you land on the homepage, you're going to get your initial bundle, whatever the minimum amount of uh, JavaScript is required, and you're going to get your first page template, whatever the page component that you're landing on. And then if you click to go to another page, when Inertia does that request to get the new page component, it's going to then lazy load that next page, page component if you have uh, code splitting in place. So that's kind of just a, a little uh, heads up if, if you're wondering about how code splitting works with Inertia. It works, it works really, really well. As far as performance compared to a classic server-side rendered application, yeah, like, you're, you're, the, like the actual time that it takes for the page to respond is identical because just it's returning... a. HTML or it's returning some data back just in the exact same way. 
The difference is compared to a server-side rendered application is that a server-side rendered application is going to give you HTML right away. And the, re- the browser can then immediately render that HTML. Whereas with Inertia, you're going to get back some, essentially a little bit, just that base div, that root div for your application, which includes your page component name and your page props. And then Vue or React need to boot up and actually render that template the first time. So for the very first page visit, which I call like the HTML page visit, uh, there's that kind of like that boot up time that has to happen that you wouldn't have with a classic server-side rendered application. However, from that point on moving forward, you now have Vue and React initialized. It's, it's active in, in your browser and the client. So from then on, any subsequent vet visits you make new endpoints, they're made over XHR. And, and then what happens is when those responses come back, Inertia dynamically swaps the existing page component with the new page component. And it's just getting that back as plain old JSON from the server. So then it's really, really fast. Like it feels, it feels awesome. I've, I've built a few applications now with Inertia and it, it really, it's, it feels great. Of course, if you're using code splitting and you visit a new page that has a ton of new dependencies that you know they all have to download those those JavaScript dependencies need to download. There's a cost there, but again, that's the kind of a trade off you make by using a client side rendered framework. And then, kind of the last kind of piece of performance I would talk about is the challenge. So this is something that's always kind of had me hesitant to building kind of the classic SPA sort of applications. And I've built them and we've run into these problems is you have, and it, I'm gonna, it's primarily a problem with REST APIs, although it can happen also with GraphQL APIs, is you have a page that needs a bunch of data, but it needs it from a bunch of different endpoints. So you have a page that loads really quick. So like in an SPA, it, has, it loads really quick but then it needs to go off and it needs to get some data from this endpoint and some more data from another endpoint and some more data from another endpoint. And you think, well, you know, if we have three to four requests getting data for this page, that's not so bad. But I've seen, practically speaking, applications that end up, and I've seen this in my own applications and I've seen this in other applications, where suddenly you have a page that's now making between 10, 20, 30 requests to get all the different data for that page. And that's because with a tool, like with a, a design pattern, like a REST API, you can't necessarily bundle up everything you need for that page just in one request, which is the whole beauty of something like GraphQL, where you can say, well, I want this here, and I want that there, and I want that there, and then can you return that all back as, as one response. So the nice thing with inertia is you don't have that. Anytime you make a request to an endpoint, so I want to go to the edit user page, or I want to go to the users page, or I want to go to whatever page it is that I want, it's making a single AJAX request, a single XHR request to the server. And that server endpoint, just like it would if it was a classic server-side rendered application that where that controller method would go off to the database and get some data, it's the exact same way. You, you do the exact same thing in that controller endpoint. And you say, well, I need this data from over here and I need this data from over here. I need this data from over here. And you can make that really quick and efficient because your, your server side has quick access to the database and it can package up just the exact data you need specifically for that request and return it back. So that's like the huge advantage Inertia has over even just even building, uh, building a, a REST API is that you can get exactly the data that you want back specifically for that request. Now, the trade-off there, again, it's, it's all about trade-offs. 
the trade-off there is you, you've created a tight coupling now between your client-side page components, so your client-side view, and your server-side endpoint. And, uh, and that's, for me, in a lot of situations, that's a trade-off I love I, because I love the performance that I can get from it. And I don't mind that tight coupling because it's easy to understand and because the, the lack of coupling creates all sorts of performance issues because I need to, with a REST API, I need to make so many requests. So, and this is a trade-off that anybody who's ever been building server-side rendered applications, that's a trade-off they're already making. That's, that's, that's just the way you build server-side rendered applications. Yeah, so, if you know, well, if you know you're, yeah. you're within a monolithic structure, then the coupling's not a problem because you know the front end and the back end are designed to work together specifically. Exactly. As, compar- as compared to being two, oh, I'm going to choose this and this and throw them together, and then you got different issues. Yeah, exactly. And, and obviously, if you go off and build a GraphQL API, then yeah, then you can make a single request get, to just get the exact data you want. But now I'm saying that's, that's, that's cool. You can do that. And I think if I was going to, build an application that needed an API, I'd definitely be reaching for GraphQL. But my point is for a lot of small applications or for a lot of applications that, that you know, that's a huge undertaking to build a GraphQL API. You know, that's, that's a whole bunch of work that maybe I didn't want to do for my simple little project. Maybe I just wanted to create a new Laravel app, you know, create an endpoint that's starting to do some things. And I wanted to be able to use Vue or React on the, on the client side and to have to say, well, in order to do this in the most performant way, I'm going to have to start by making in this, uh, I have to have a client-side application repo now, and I need to have this GraphQL app, uh, app and repo and hosting and all that hoopla that all comes along with that. Again, of course, there's use cases and good use cases for that tooling. I just think there's a ton of applications. And I mean, I think there's a lot more than we even realize. I think there's so many applications that are well-suited for just a monolithic sort of design and even if you do need a, an iOS or an Android application at some point, at least in my experience, quite often the iOS and Android apps don't need to have the full functionality of your web app. It, at least in my experience, almost, almost never. Now, of course, there are situations and there are applications that you do want complete feature parity, but I think there's a lot of applications that don't need that. You can have your, your main web app that, that does the vast majority of things. And then iOS and Android apps that have a, a subset of the features that are kind of most appropriate to have on mobile. And in those situations, there's still nothing stopping you from then within your monolithic application, creating a simple API endpoint for whatever you need for those iOS and Android apps. And I've done that. I've built my own app in that way. And it works really, really nice. Like if you think about it, like here's one great example. In a lot of web apps and a lot of web well, you know, a lot of web software, there's a whole layer of like system management. So whoever's, you know, maintaining that software, whoever owns that software, it's an area that your clients don't have access to. It's just an area that you use from, you know, just to manage the system, manage billing, manage customers, whatever. And that might all be built within your application. That can be, a, that stuff can really add up all that code and all the those pages and everything else. And that's all stuff right there that it totally, totally doesn't have to exist in an iOS or Android app. Just because it exists within your web app, it doesn't need to be over there because you're typically not going to be doing that administrative work on a mobile device. You just, or, or maybe even if it would be nice to, you don't need to, right? So that's a kind of a, a, an area that you could just build in web form and, and completely leave out of the iOS and Android apps. So, okay, so let's step out of the weeds a little bit and go some bigger picture questions. So mm-hmm. if you're... In the React community, and generally, you're 
you want a server-side rendered application, you're going to reach for Next. If you're in Vue, you're going to reach for Nuxt. And I'm more familiar with Nuxt. And so you have your three different ways. You can do an SPA, you can do Universal, where you're actually using a node backend, or you can do, now with 2.13, you can do straight static mode, which is a Gatsby type of site or a Grissom type of site. Yep. So is there cases where inertia would be better than a Nuxt site for somebody? Obviously, inertia isn't something you would want to use for a static site because you can, the whole idea is that you have your controllers on the back end that can dynamically generate your data for you quickly. Yep. So let's say I'm looking at something in Nuxt in universal mode with the node back end or inertia. What's the, the pro, where does inertia do better than, than say Nuxt? Yeah, so I would think like right off the bat, if you're using Nuxt in that format, you're using a node back end, right? So if you if you're a Laravel developer, if you're a PHP developer, you're a Ruby developer, and you're totally familiar with that ecosystem and that whole way of building server side applications, you may not want to build a Node backend, right? So that's that's just one really that's just one thing right off the bat. So and that's really again like I I I didn't build. Sorry, you're going to say something. Well, I was going to say. I mean, no, the node backend comes with Nuxt. Most of your work is doing on the front end. I mean, in some cases, you're, you know, if you're using async data, for instance, or middleware, you're going to intercept the data that's coming back from area calls, and you can do things with it, mutate it, whatever you want to do before it to get passed to your front end. So you're not necessarily writing a node backend from scratch, like I say you would be with a Laravel or a Ruby. It's there for you to use as need be, but it's still a node backend as you know, as compared to, like you said, something you're more familiar with, like Laravel yeah. or Ruby or whatever. For your own yeah, I guess, backend. yeah, I guess my question would be, well, what it, like, is the expectation then with Nuxt, and I'm assuming it is, the expectation is that you would have an API that you would use to do anything that you need to do custom on the back end? Yeah, you're still going to need to call some sort of API endpoint yeah, to, so to that's, get your data. And there's different ways and places to do it, but yeah, that's the yep. gist of it. Yeah, so then the, the big advantage of using inertia is that you don't need to build that API. So you you're building it, you would build a classic server side, like kind of a classic server side application that does things, but you wouldn't have to build an API specifically for this client side application. You could just build a normal monolith server side rendered application. And when I say server side, I don't mean it's actually server side rendered, but yeah, like a, a normal server side app like Laravel or or uh, Rails. And you wouldn't have to build the API that would then work with an, the, the kind of the Nux front end or whatever. You would just build it as a normal Laravel or Rails app. Right. So, so one of the things you can do, you know, there's, there's with Vue and Nuxt, you know, Nuxt provides your server side rendering is you can use it a couple backend, you know, a, a Contentful or a Strapi or a Prismic or or whatever. So your inertia obviously is designed for your developing soups to nuts front to back, top to bottom, whatever phraseology you want to use. Now, I did yeah. notice on your inertia site, I don't know if we've talked about this too much, is the array of front and back ends that you can use together. So you could use Laravel with Vue, you could use Ruby with React, you could, so there is a little bit of plug and play in terms of the tool set that you can use on both the front and back end. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. Yep. That's it. That's, you can use, uh, on the client side, you can use Vue.js, you can use React, or you can use Svelte. We have adapters, client-side adapters for all three of those. What about Vanilla.js? Could you use just straight JS, or do you need to use one of those frameworks on your front end? Yeah, like, that's kind of the, that's kind of like the value prop, right? Like, you, the, the whole, the whole, 
the whole idea is that you want to use something like Vue or React because they provide all this tooling, right? And make it really easy to do this stuff. Nobody has done vanilla JS at this point because I would, you know, the, the main feature that Inertia needs in a client-side library like this is the ability to do dynamic component swapping so that we can switch out one page component to another page component. Now you could write theoretically your own vanilla JavaScript front end, but that kind of- it seems like would, a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah, you'd be creating a new framework at that point. That's not really the idea. The idea is really the goal with Inertia is to allow people who are already familiar with server-side frameworks like Laravel or Rails or any one of those server-side frameworks and who are familiar with a tool like Vue or React or Svelte, to be able to use those two things together in the more classic monolithic way and avoid having to do the whole API setup and having to build a separate API from your client. It's really the goal is to keep those things together, keep them tightly, tightly coupled so that you can iterate and make applications really, really quickly. Gotcha. Okay, so a couple more things we that I think people would be interested in. One yep. is authentication and form submissions. Two very common, you yep. know, things that you're going to need to set up with any application. So how does Inertia handle those those two yes. uh, things? Yeah, so I'll start with auth because it's it's so easy. So <laughs> this is one of the things that I think people, at least the you know, in the community, the the, the programming community that I follow along with. Authentication is always this complicated thing. Anytime you want to move to using, kind of going to the SPA API way, you you need to use something like OAuth or, you know, people choose not even to roll their own authentication systems and they start using services that do it instead. The nice thing with Inertia is you really don't have to think about authentication at all because typically your client or your server-side framework, so Laravel, for instance, has an awesome session-based auth system built in, ready to go. So with Inertia, you don't need to set up OAuth. You don't need to use some third-party service. You literally just set up basic session auth, just like you would with any Laravel application, and you're up and running. Because it's all, again, it's all within one application. It's all just one monolith. So when you log in, it creates a, a, a cookie, right, which tracks your se- your session. And as you browse around your application, Inertia makes requests and those get validated just like they would with a normal uh, full page visit to your application. So authentication is like really, really nice and simple. It's kind of like one of the nicest things that you just don't have to deal with at all when building uh, an SPA with Inertia. So and then the other thing is form submissions. Uh, and just doing form stuff in general. So kind of one thing I haven't mentioned this whole time is when you make an inertia visit, so there's there's two ways you can make an inertia visit. One is by clicking a link. So you have an inertia link, which is basically just an anchor link that has an href to a page. So the only difference is it's an inertia link so that when you click on that, inertia knows to intercept that and do the, you know, uh, uh, visit the back end via XHR, via Ajax and get the data that way instead. However, you can also make requests using just programmatically. So you can, you can call inertia.visit and visit whatever page programmatically as well. And you can do that not only for get requests, but you can also do it for put or post or patch or delete. So this is kind of where it's kind of unique because you're making these page visits 
but they're using they're not just get requests at that point they can be other they using other methods instead so the way that you would typically set up a form in inertia and this is kind of a little bit different than how you would with a classic view a classic view app is you would set up a form and it would have your inputs in it and you know if you're using view you're going to have some data that's assigned, right? You have some data that's predefined and you have some V model attributes set up so you can keep track of that reactively. And, but then when you go and hit, when you submit that form, typically what you would do with you is you would, you would intercept that form submission and submit it down using XHR, using Ajax. The difference is, and then, and then what you would do is you would inspect that response manually from that, from that response, from that form submission. You would, you would inspect that response manually in JavaScript and say, well, if an error came back, well, then we're going to update the page to show some errors. However, if a success message came back, well, then we're going to redirect to some other page within the application. So if we're creating a user and the email address validation failed, well, we'll show an email validation error. Or if the, we're creating a new user and the user was created, well, then we got the ID back and we're going to redirect to some other page. It doesn't work that way with inertia. It's, it's, it's actually really, really simple. What you do is you still intercept that form submission client side with Vue.js, except what you do instead of submitting the, the, submitting the request using Ajax and passing down the data and looking at the response and then updating based on the response, you literally just do... Say, for example, if you're creating a user, you would do inertia.post and then you'd pass the endpoint where you'd create the user, so slash users, and then you'd pass in the form data. So first name, last name, email, whatever. And that's just an object that you pass to uh, inertia post. And then what inertia does, and that's it. That's literally all you write. It's one line of code. You don't do anything else. And then what happens is that gets submitted down to your server as an inertia request, but it's a post inertia request. What happens then is it hits the create user endpoint. It does some validation. And let's, let's just start by saying, let's go happy path first. Let's say there's no validation errors. And it creates the new user. And then what it does is in the, in, in the Ajax request that gets submitted down, that inertia request that gets submitted down, it then you would then do just like you would in a classic server-side rendered application is you wouldn't return some JSON at that point that gives you the ID of that user in a normal classic server-side rendered application, what you would do is you would do a redirect to the page that you want to go to. So let's say after I create a user, I want to go and visit that user page. So the way it would work in a classic server-side rendered application is you would do a redirect after you create the user that redirects you to the new user's page. And you do the exact same thing with Inertia.js. So when that request comes down, it creates the user and it does a server-side redirect in the XHR request. Okay, so and then it goes from there and it lands on that, that new user's page. However, because the server can recognize that it's an inertia request, it says, hey, this is an inertia request. So we're not going to return full HTML here for the, for the view user page. Instead, we know it's an inertia. We're, we're going to return an inertia response instead, which says, well, we're gonna, we want the view user or the edit user page maybe. And here's the data for that new user that we just created. That response then comes back to Inertia. Remember, from you made that from your create user form. And Inertia says, hey, I got a, an Inertia response back. I know what to do with that. I got this new page, which is view user. And I have some data, which is the new user data. And it dynamically swaps out client side. And now you're on the, the, the view user page. So without any work on your own, having to inspect that response, 
it all just happens automatically because it's really been, this whole tool has been designed to work like a classic server-side rendered application, except it's client-side rendered. So that's kind of like the happy path. The, the, the validation failing path is also very, very similar and very, very easy as well. When you do that inertia.post and you pass it to the user's endpoint that's going to create the new users and that validation fails, let's say the email address, it doesn't return back to you some, uh, a bucket of, of errors in the J, you know, as some JSON from that response. What it does is exactly like it would do in a normal server-side rendered application, it's going to redirect back to your create user page. So when it's doing this within the XHR request, right? So keep that in mind. So you, you hit the create user page, validation for the email fails. It automatically redirects back to the create user page, which you're actually already on. That comes back to the client now. And, and sorry, before I go there. So it goes back to the create user endpoint within your application, except this time it has in the session, it has some flash data. It has some error data. It has some error data from, from the validation there that just failed. So in a classic server-side rendered application, you would then take that and throw it into your Blade template or your ERB template, and you'd render out those errors manually. But what happens is with inertia, it comes back as an inertia response, which comes then says, well, we're going to pass these errors now automatically to the create user page. And then what happens is it's because inertia is now essentially made a visit right back to the same page, it then updates the page, which doesn't change at all because you're still in the create user page component. So that doesn't change. But what does change is the props that are being passed to that component. And because tools like React Svelte and, and Vue.js are reactive, when that new prop comes in, that, that bucket of error messages, it'll dynamically and automatically refresh your pay template to show that error for you because that's just how the reactivity works in these libraries. So it's, it's that maybe you know, that's a long description. It maybe sounds complicated, but practically speaking, and if you go into the, if you go to inertiajs.com and, and go to the forms page and you look at the examples for Vue and React, it's really, really simple um, how you end up building these things. And the beauty is that you don't have to inspect these responses. It just works automatically because <clears throat> you're getting these inertia responses back. So you, you obviously would have to write your component to handle the props and, you know, display here and you know, display this error here. It says, oh, your email address is the incorrect format or, or whatever. Yeah. But it's just basically taking advantage of the, of the data binding, the reactivity within the front end library. And then you have to it, handle that reactivity change. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that you still have to actually display the error. That's your responsibility. And you can do that however you want, you know, obviously. It just means that it just means the code to do the work is much simpler. It's, you almost got to think about it like if you were building a classic server-side rendered app, when you would do a form submission, his, you know, the way that those work is it actually does a full page reload, right? And that might be a get, a get submission or a post submission. And then you'd have to do some validation and then re-render that whole page. And what sucks with that approach is that you actually, any existing form data, so like the first name or the last name or the email, you have to then like manually repopulate the inputs, right? With that data, which is annoying. But with inertia, the whole, the component is still there and the local state's still there. It's simply getting some updated props from the, from the server after the inertia response comes back. And, it's, and because of the reactivity, those props just get automatically used by the component. So there's no like repopulating form inputs. It just, that just, just works automatically because the page component isn't being destroyed. 
Awesome. Okay, so we need to start wrapping up here a bit. So before we get into picks, so where can people help out if they want to contribute to Inertia or just watch what's going on with this project? Yeah, so inertiajs.com. That's a good place to go. I'm on Twitter. That's where I'm pretty active. I'm most active on Twitter. So it's just my last name, twitter.com slash Reinink, R-E-I-N-I-N-K. That's my username there. So I talk about inertia and database stuff and Laravel stuff a lot there. And there's also an inertia Twitter. There's an inertia Twitter page account as well that you can follow. We're on GitHub, obviously. And we also have a Discord channel. And we also have a newsletter that you can follow along. And I send periodic updates as well about that. So what is, uh, what's the Inertia.js Twitter account? It's just Inertia.js. Inertia.js. And yep. then a Discord channel. There's a link on our, the website for that. Oh, okay. It's little, Good. It's, yeah. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. All righty. So we will move into picks. So we lost AJ and I think we lost Amy. Dropping like, oh, Amy's here. Woohoo. Okay. <laughs> so we're dropping like flies. Do you have any picks, Amy? I do. Let's see. Uh, I'm trying to think. I have a couple here. I'm going to go with this kind of, well, not kind of, it is pretty much completely unrelated to what we've been talking about, unless you host your stuff on AWS. But I'm going to pick something. It's more geared towards startups. So maybe it could be like tangentially related to what we're talking about because monoliths are good for startups sometimes because uh, you want to just do something fast. But uh, how to reduce your AWS bill by 2%. Or no, I misspoke. Um, our AWS bill is two percent of is less than 2% of our revenue. So uh that sounds pretty good because that stuff can get really expensive really fast and you want to be careful what you're clicking on. So that'll be my pick. All right, I'll go next. So I got sort of an interesting one. I'm going to go with colonoscopies. And here, there's a reason for this. Um, I'm 51 and you know, generally it's recommended that once you're 50, you get a colonoscopy. And my wife's been pestering me for quite a while to get mine done. And so I had one scheduled for May or April, it was April or May, and then it got put off when uh, medical organizations weren't allowed to do procedures because of COVID restrictions. And it's been rescheduled tentatively for August. But then this week, I heard an interesting story. A friend of mine, is almost exactly 10 years younger than me, was diagnosed with colon cancer. And I was talking to him yesterday about it, and he was telling me how 
uh, started a few weeks ago. He started getting all this pain in his gut. And he goes, we went and did like ultrasound, didn't find anything. We went and did like a CAT scan, inconclusive. We did a colonoscopy and endoscopy, and that's where they nailed it. That's where they found uh, the cancer. It's like a golf ball size uh, malignant tumor, right where it's uh, small and large intestines meet, I believe. So they'll do surgery to remove that. And I, <clears throat> I joked with him that he's now going to have a semicolon instead of a full colon. But anyway, the point was that it was the colonoscopy that found that where other procedures did not find it. He's only 41. And so, which is considered young for something like that. So he's, uh, his doctor wants to submit his case uh, to a, a local medical school, you know, just as a case study of what can happen. Anyway, that's the whole point, you know, get checked for stuff like that uh, because sometimes those tests will find things that maybe other tests, tests miss. So that's my cheerful pick on to Jonathan. What do you have for us? I didn't know if I had to have a pick. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine if you don't have one. No, be, I think if I've, you can think I've, of it, it can be anything you want. TV, movies, books, you name it. Good recipe yeah. you've cooked lately. <laughs> you know, I got nothing off and I'll, I guess I'll just pass then because I don't want to say something silly. <laughs> oh, we're all about silly here, right, Amy? Well, I, okay. Well, then, then I will say that I just finished watch, watching Lost in Space the, on Netflix for the second time, which I think there is you amazing. Go. Love, love it. I think it's so well done. Is so this a series? Watched, I'm trying to think about it. Yeah, there's, there's two series now, or two seasons now, and I think they're going to be doing one more that they said was coming out in 2021, I think, which I don't know if that's changed now with all the COVID stuff. But yeah, it's, uh, I think it's an awesome series. Is it? Do you, have you ever seen the original? He, like, well, it doesn't, like, isn't it based on like the, the book, the Robinson Family book, whatever it's called? Oh, Robinson Crusoe? No. Um, oh, shoot. I forget what it's called. Twist Family whatever. Robinson? Yes, that's, I think. Isn't it lightly? And then there's also, yeah, the, the original movie, right? The, that Lost in Space movie, which I have seen as well, yes. Well, actually, no. There's a, I can remember watching this when I was very young. Won't tell you how old I am, but... You already actually, have. I already did, dang it. <laughs> uh, cat's out of the bag. No, back in the 60s, there was an original episode that kids my age will remember watching cartoons... Gotcha. Back when. And then Matt LeBlanc did a movie, I know, if I remember correctly, a few yeah. years ago, sometime after Friends. I don't think it ever did very well. Mm, yeah, 1998. That was the first one I watched. Okay. Yes, yeah. and you are correct. It was inspired by the novel, The Swiss Family Robinson. There you go. And I've been saying, like, I've been saying, saying Danger Will Robinson for years, and my wife has no idea <laughs> what I'm talking about whenever I say that. Right. But now, but now she watched it with me, so now she knows. So. Right, exactly. All righty, so... Thank you for coming on and talking about inertia. Hopefully this podcast will give your project some <clears throat> inertia going forward. And yeah, thanks for joining us. And we will see everybody next time on JavaScript Jabber. Bye. Thanks, for, thanks, Steve, thanks for, for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.